You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. No doubt Tuapi was herself a murderess. Patwin was always reminding me of this. The seven women in her antechamber, the groomsmen, the musician, the animals, all killed on her behalf. But I'd no wish to condemn her. In the context of those rows of dead babies, it didn't seem like much. In the history of the world, nothing at all. What ruler in what land in what era has ever done otherwise? Name me one president elected by and acting for us who hasn't promised that we'll have peace just as soon as he's done killing people. Sixteen million soldiers, many of them killers themselves, dead in the Great War. Does anyone know why? Does anyone believe we are done? Besides, Tuapi was sorry. I'd been wrong to think that that was longing in her face when it was clearly remorse. She'd wanted company in death, but that hadn't worked out. Was it possible she now wanted company in some unending world of guilt? The summer people brought gossip from the court and tales from even farther away. A woman had grown a pumpkin as big as a carriage in her garden, hollowed it out, and slept there, which for some reason couldn't be allowed, so now there was a law against sleeping in pumpkins. A new country had been found where the people had hair all over their bodies and ran about on their hands and feet like dogs, but were very musical. A child had been born in the East who could look at anyone and know how they would die, which frightened his neighbors so much they'd killed him, as he'd always known they would. A new island had risen in the south, made of something too solid to be water and too liquid to be earth. The king had a son. Karen Joy Fowler is the author of novels that include Sarah Canary, the Jane Austen Book Club, and Wit's End. Her short story always won the Nebula Best Short Story Award of 2007. From the Science Fiction Writers of America, her new collection of short stories is What I Didn't See. Thank you for joining me, Karen. Thank you so much for having me. You know, Karen, as I was going through reading the stories in this collection, it just really made me think how family is the first, the last, the unending source of inspiration for every (laughs) writer. I... Just a few days ago, in some sort of uh, reading session, was forced to confess that every story I seem to write, uh, my father pops up in one way or another. There just seems to be no way to keep him out of my work. Well, you know, it strikes me too that as we as we are children, we see the characters, the process of characterization happening as we grow up, our perspective changes, we see our parents grow old, we ourselves grow older, and so there's this whole natural process as being part of being a family is seeing character development happening right in front of your eyes and being part of it. And two, it strikes me too that family stories are like the stories in your book, short stories. They're really kind of compact and they're like episodes. And I think that you capture that well in in a few of the stories in here. Thank you. I've also been thinking uh, about growing up and the sort of revision of the world that you do, um, not only with reference to the people in your family, but to the larger world that, you know, that there's a, certainly a point when you're young, when you imagine that the world is run by competent adults, 
you just sort of assume that those people who are bigger than you um, know what they're doing. And little by little, the scales fall from your eyes, or maybe all at once in some shocking episode. But yes, I think, you know, a lot of, of growing up in a family and growing up in the world is sort of um, discovering that the story you've been telling yourself is not actually as accurate as you thought it was and having to come up with a new one, which in its turn will also turn out not to be very accurate. Now, uh, the the first story in this in this uh, collection, the Pelican Bar, is I think one of the most terrifying stories I've read in quite some time. Uh, I'm curious. It, to me, it struck me as um, almost like a, a, a Grimm's fairy tale. It's, I'm, yes, I think it is a terrifying story, and I don't really um, specialize in terrifying stories. I'm easily and deeply terrified, so I don't watch scary movies. And, and that story actually won the, um, the Shirley Jackson Award this year, which, um, again, was w- wonderful but ironic because most of the other stories that were up on the ballot were too scary for me to actually read. <laughs> but... Um, I, uh, it involves a, a system of schools f- set up for difficult children, um, all of which are housed somewhere overseas so that they're not, they don't come under certain legal obligations or um, supervision that um, states got stateside schools would come to. And uh, they were brought to my attention several years ago when the niece of a good friend of mine was suddenly shipped off to one of them. Uh, my friend was very upset and horrified, and and she began to look into the schools, and I began to read about them online when that happened. And then, um, this is based on something real. This is based on something real. Yes, I, I thought these it was are too terrifying to be. I wish, real. <laughs> I wish, but you know, most of the um, most of the things that happened to my protagonist are. Um, are from accounts of children that have been posted online about their experiences in these schools, and and it came they came to my attention again because I was so very um, upset. Uh, upset doesn't even begin to describe it over the um, the the fact that um, torture seemed suddenly to be on the table. Um, in, in the political system, you know, so, something that we could discuss, something that that we were clearly involved in, and, and that, um, to, to my way of thinking, a shockingly high percentage of the political um, world was willing to entertain. And, and I was looking at um, stuff about that, and I came across online someone who said, uh, you know, why, why should this surprise us? We are quite willing to send our children off to these schools to be tortured. Why would we have a problem putting political um, p- uh, political enemies or people we think might be political enemies in a similar situation to what we'll do to our own children? And so that's what um, that's when I the story kind of came together for me. And it's so it's a response to, or it's it's an affirmation of that statement that. Well, you know, what strikes me, one of the things that makes a story so powerful, and you do this often, I think, in your stories, is this sense of dislocation that were taken, some of this, you remove just enough of the specifics of 
place and time and date that were taken out of uh, our lives in a way, but we can't, it, it seems so convincing, we can't get back in. And there's this really <laughs> terrify, terrorizing sense of, I, I, I just want to get back to, to my life, and you can't. Uh, that's, um, that's, that's interesting. That's wonderful to hear. I think that, um, I, I don't know how consciously that's, that's what I'm trying for. I'm, I'm frequently trying to be quite specific as to where we are, um, mm-hmm. but, but within that, that sense of you being in a particular place at a particular time, it also not being quite that, quite the place at that time as you pictured it. Yeah, um, it seems. Well, the the place where she ends up, uh, the school, is very specific, and we totally believe every gritty god-awful detail that you choose to tell us about, and I can't even want to think about it, <laughs> to tell the truth, but the where it is, even necessarily when, that we know it's pretty contemporary because of the, the beginning of the story gives us some frame, but where and when it just, all of a sudden, when we're unmoored from our lives, you know, in the United States, and the cities where you get up, you go to work, you can kind of reach out and see the rest of the world uh, your protagonist is just shut off cut off and it's really quite frightening that sense of isolation and I'm wondering how much that isolation sense of isolation um, how, how do you feel of that I mean hmm um, where do you draw that sense where do from? I draw that sense from I, you know I think that um, probably like everybody else in the world who writes and quite possibly like everybody else in the world, uh, you know, that I have always felt um, like a bit of an outsider. And uh, I I think that I can pinpoint something in my own autobiography that that leads to that. But as I said, it's such a universal feeling. I may be putting a, a cause where one, no, None is needed, but um, but I, you know I moved at the age of eleven from Indiana to California, mm-hmm. and that was just a very shocking dislocation for me. Uh, I had a went to a school with people that I had you know known all my life, and where I had a certain kind of standing into a place where um, not only did nobody know me, but kids in California were a, a lot older at the same age than than kids in Indiana. So uh, it was a world that I was very unprepared for and and did not navigate easily or happily. Um, It sounds frightening, I guess, because you were not as competent. All of a sudden, you were less competent than those around you. Yes, absolutely. And also visible in a way that you're not, you know, uh, in your own family, among f- old friends, n- nobody is really looking at you anymore mm. unless you do something really startling. Now, you you have a fondness for John Wilkes Booth. And <laughs> I have no fondness for John Wilkes Booth. I have a great fondness for Edwin Booth. <laughs> I'm going to go out on a limb and say I think John Wilkes Booth was not a nice man. <laughs> I, you know, as I was reading the stories in this book that center around him, and I'm thinking about family, I'm just thinking, you know, her great, great granddaughter is going to write a series of stories <laughs> about <laughs> Lee Harvey Oswald. <laughs> I, you know, I truly am not 
terribly interested in John Wilkes Booth, but I'm very interested in the um, innocent people who, the the fallout, Mm -hmm. you know, what it would be like. Not so interested in what it would be like to be John Wilkes Booth. I'm very interested in what it would be like to be John Wilkes Booth's brother. It's always interesting to me, too, the, the, there are the victims of killers, the people they actually kill, but to me it seems to be far worse to have known somebody who was that and who had a whole second life or had some kind of eruption in their soul that led them to do something terrible. And all of a sudden you are forever linked with that terrible person in a way that you can't get away from. Yeah. We'll, we'll talk about uh, the, the two stories here. Talk about uh, Booth's Ghost first, which is a really, it's a beautiful and evocative story. I Thank think. you. I think it's quite a feel-good story, mm-hmm. <laughs> it's way, <laughs> given that, that Abraham Lincoln does die. Um, uh, as I said, I actually wrote them in the other order. So I wrote mm-hmm. Standing Room Only first, mm-hmm. and Booth's Ghost um, Actually, quite recently, Booth's Ghost is the one story in the book that hasn't been published anywhere else. That is new to the book, and but I had done a lot of research for the earlier story, and mm-hmm. I had begun thinking about um, Edwin Booth when I was writing that because I was reading so much about about the the details of the assassination, the conspiracy, and um, and I just came upon a newspaper account of the day that Edwin Booth returned to the stage after a a period of silence um, after the assassination. And, um, and, you know, the the newspaper article was extremely uh, tense about what they had anticipated and um, that there had been threats against his life, that he had been told not to return to the stage, how nervous he was, and and also how... um, unseemly in many ways he thought it was um you know to to go back into the public eye with this this dreadful crime in your family and um and what a hostile audience he expected and that was just all very very dramatic and and um because he was so famous for his hamlet there was a lot of um possibility to bring that into play as well um his his very very famous father and his very very famous brother and you know it one of the things i think you mentioned the details the historical details in the story and i love the way you tell us the details um there's a couple of times when you tell us what the weather's like and i just think oh my god it, it just really um it has a sense of putting you there and and i think in terms of the short story uh, the economy it required of the short story, I think that uh, the details really play an important part, and you do a great job of, of editing those details. And I'd like you to talk about, here we have two stories that center around the, the same event, kind of from different, you know, it's the telescope on the left side of the stadium and the telescope on the right side of the stadium. Um, talk about uh, creating these two different visions, what details you chose, and how the, the first story influenced the second, and just deciding to write short stories as opposed to a, a novel out of this. One of my very favorite short stories in the whole world is uh, Angela Carter's, I think it's called The 
Fall River Axe Murders. It's about Lizzie Borden. And it is um, as near as I can tell by reading it and not researching it, um, a very, very accurate account, very detailed account of her, um, Lizzie Borden's last couple of days before the, um, before the murders. And, um, and one thing I have always, as I said, you know, I, I love it. And it's got a, just a chilling, chilling last line. And when I put it down, I always believe completely that it's a short story. Um, but I'm sort of puzzled as to why, because it seems all quite historically researched and accurate. Um, and so I had that model somewhat in mind. Um, what I like about about making a short story out of historical material is that, you know, rather than having to concoct um, out of your own um, exhausted imagination some sort of episodes that that it's more of a picking and choosing sort of thing that you're you're trying to shape it so that it has the same sort of suspense and um, movement as a plotted story but um, but the game of course is to try to try to be as accurate as possible to what you actually find in the historical record I'm always always want to be careful um, not to say to what was true because I am not so naive as to think the historical record and the truth necessarily match up well at all. <laughs> but um, but I'm not making the stuff up myself. I'm I'm researching it out of books, and then I'm looking for incidents that seem to me, um, as you said, that uh, that seem in some sort of compressed way to open out into the character or the events or the time. Uh, you know, the things that carry a lot of um, information in a very packed way um, and things that are very resonant. You know, what I was thinking was, and I hadn't even considered that until this moment, that here are two stories where they center around something where everybody in the universe knows what happened, and I knew what happened, but I was still gripped by every single word, wanting to get through the narrative that you'd written in such a, a wonderful fashion. And, and I think that's really an interesting accomplishment to, to tell us something we already know in a way that makes it seem completely new. Well, thank you. Of course, the fact that, um, that I'm dealing with events that people do already know um, is enormously helpful as well because there are things that I don't have to explain. There are things that, that I can assume mm -hmm. that the reader will bring. Um, I guess that's true. Yeah, we, we bring all our knowledge to it. So, and that's, too, why these uh, kind of unpack as you read them. And, I mean, I, I, wouldn't need, I don't need to read the novel because I read the short story and it felt almost like a novel without <laughs> having to like, spend three or four days reading it. Well, thank you. Um, but you also, you know, you, you get to put the bits into the story that you already know. Mm. So it, it um, like I said, you're, you're participating in a way that you wouldn't be participating if it weren't a very famous historical event. Well, I think uh, that brings us to this, when you talk about how we, the readers, participate. You know, all readers, reading is a participatory act. I mean, you guys get Absolutely. to be, the writer gets to be the, the, you know, you get to give us, hand us the screenplay, but we're the directors and the cinematographers. And I'm wondering, in those terms, when you're 
writing the screenplay, f so to speak, for a short story as opposed to the screenplay for a novel. Talk about how you, uh, the differences in approach to what you're going to, how many clues you're going to hand the reader as to what they need to know. I do spend a lot of time thinking, uh, as I like my stories in general, not, not always, but almost always, to... Um, to, to be surprising, I, you know, I want to take you someplace that you don't expect to be, and I, and I want there to be things in the story that take you by surprise, and because of that, I'm, I'm thinking a lot about what I think the reader understands at this point in time, and you know what I want them to understand, and what, but, but more importantly, what I don't want them yet to understand, what I don't want them yet to know. So I think about. Um, uh, I think about it in kind of a, a painterly way in terms of negative space that I, I think, you know, that that my stories, um, particularly my short stories, I feel have a lot of negative space in them and a, a lot of room for the reader, I hope. I, I, I like a very engaged reader. I like a very active reader because that's the kind of reader I am, so... Well, sometimes your stories have these wonderful places, elisions, and uh, I, as I go from point A to point like H, <laughs> and and I'm kind of like, feel, it's a wonderful feeling of like running across a suspension bridge or something, so just <laughs> swaying over this canyon. And <laughs> so uh, do you, are, when you're creating the short story, do you find yourself writing longer short stories than you end up with and taking stuff out? No. My process for both short stories and novels is exactly the opposite. I start very, very spare. And, and, and um, like most writers, I think, uh, really pretty much loathe the first crack I take at anything. Everything that I like, everything that I think works in my stories is something that I add in a later draft. And I, I get it um, closer and closer, although never quite to where I hope it will go. Um, but it's at always, inevitably, uh, a filling out mm. kind of process and not a, not a winnowing away kind of process. And I, I um, because I said, you know, I'm trying to think about what the reader knows and what I want them to know and what I want to, them to be surprised by. I, I have a number of workshops and I take them in and I'm frequently, talk about surprise, <laughs> I'm frequently the one surprised by what they, mostly by what they didn't understand and what apparently, you know, I have provided far too, too little, uh, too few hand holds on that suspension bridge for them, and they they've you know they've ended up in some place that just astonishes me. <laughs> so I and you write a little bit about the workshops at the at the back of the book and talk about that, and that's an interesting process. And which for you then writing is a participatory process. I mean, it's a group activity. Almost. <laughs> uh, it takes a village. <laughs> takes a village to write one of my stories. We'll talk about, uh, you know, the personalities in the groups and, and your personality and, and how you approach the group and, and give us a feel for some of the dy complicated dynamics, I'm guessing, that go into the creation yeah. of your stories. I, well, I, I love workshops. I just, everything about them is intensely pleasurable to me because... I love a, a real pitched battle over something that 
matters, in fact, not at all to anybody outside <laughs> the room. Uh, and and I, li- I like to think about how stories are put together and how they might work and, you know, what the potential in a, in a draft might be. Um, I ha- you know, I do, I have a lot of workshops um, that I participate in. As I said, I, I love them as a social activity as well as mm-hmm as a writing activity, and I think that it is very rare that I don't make some changes to my work after I've workshopped it. Having said that, I'm really an extremely stubborn person as well, and I never make nearly as many changes as people think I should be making, and I think that one of the reasons that workshops work so well for me is that I actually don't listen a whole lot to what anybody says. Oh, that's very interesting. <laughs> <laughs> Nor does anyone else in the workshops, as far as I can tell. Well, I'm guessing that there's a kind of a, a, a zeitgeist, a, a word cloud that hovers over the workshop <laughs> that you can pull the best parts out of and say, okay, this works, and the rest of it I've got my umbrella for. Well, I think, you know, um, I think in a workshop that you get, uh, you get an enormous amount of advice, and all of it is from people who love you, who really want the story to work, and who are smart readers. So um, one of the tricky things when you're, when you're a, a more impressionable writer is, you know, then you take home this mass, often a very conflicting advice, mm. and you have to figure out what you want to listen to and what you, what you don't. And a, a, lot of, a lot of that is very tricky. I think that... Um, Inevitably, and I'm as guilty of this as anybody else, inevitably, great majority of the advice that you get in a workshop is not actually about the story you're writing. It's about the story the person who's reading it would be writing if it was their story. And Mm. so it's really good advice for a story you're not writing, but it's not the story you're writing, and so it's not good advice. And I think... um, for me, in some ways, the most helpful advice I get in a workshop is advice that I do not take, but um, but it's not instantly clear to me why I'm not going to take it. Sometimes I, you know, sometimes I'll hear something in a workshop and I'll think that sounds like a really good idea, and I'll go home and I'll open my computer and I'll I'll pull up my file and I'll start to make the change that I've that I think I want to make, and I will just feel all the energy drain from my body. I just, and I will think, uh, okay, you know, um, some part of me thinks this is not a good idea because if I'm making changes that I think are good, I'm full of energy to do it. I can't wait to get at it. And so I have to stop and think very carefully. And usually I can eventually figure out why this is actually not a good idea. And once I figured that out, I understand something about my story that I didn't really, I hadn't articulated anyway. And so I'm always trying to persuade the people in my workshop that just because I didn't do a thing you said doesn't mean it wasn't incredibly valuable. (laughs) You know, it, it strikes me too that maybe some of the best advice that you take out of a workshop is the advice you're giving other readers. Oh, absolutely. Other writers. I, you have, I think you, you have, 
just articulated my whole sense of how workshops work, which is not what I anticipated when I started. You know, when I started my first workshop, I thought, well, you know, the valuable part will be when we're talking about my story. And when I'm talking about somebody else's story, that's just payback. You know, that's just me returning fair, uh, fair value for what I'm getting. And I think over the years that exactly the opposite has turned out to be true that you know when I'm looking at somebody else's story my own ego is not involved I have a very clear eye about what uh, what needs to be done Um, what I think needs to be done is of limited value to the person whose story it is because as I said they're not writing the story that I would be writing but but that as I did that over and over and over again I really began to see what I wanted from stories, what was important to me in stories, when it was accomplished and when it wasn't, all all things that I could then take back into my own writing, hopefully in useful ways. I love the story, and you read this last year, SF and SF, The Last Warders. It's just so wonderful. And one of the things you do in that story, that's another story that really knocks the reader right out of the park with with that kind of sense of dislocation because you create this incredible environment that I'm guessing is nowhere on this earth yet until they build the Karen Joy Fowler (laughs) amusement park. (laughs) Which... Huh, I wonder what they'll charge for tickets to that. <laughs> so talk about uh, creating um, uh, Sam Margay, which is a, w- a wonderful, wonderful place. Thank you. Um, I, my daughter and I traveled through Spain um, together um, now five or six years ago. And I there we um, it was a very fraught, trip, I have to say, in a number of ways. My daughter um, uh, was just recovering from the death of her fiancé, and she was, um, it was Christmas. We were avoiding Christmas, basically. I, um, she had said that she didn't think she could do Christmas, and I didn't think any of us could do Christmas. So she and I went to Spain and tried to pretend that it wasn't Christmas, and it wasn't New Year's. And, um, and to travel with my daughter when she's in uh a good frame of mind is often dislocating for me because she she believes very firmly uh, we you know we we pay for half and half and the half she can pay for is not uh, not a big half and she believes that you save your money for food and uh, tickets to things but that you do not waste your money on the places that you sleep so we we <laughs> had some cockroach infested beds um but the the town that I made um you know as as I said it was a it was a difficult trip it was a um an intense trip um it was a very dislocating kind of trip because I was not only in a country that I did not know but with a person who at that moment I did not know as well as um I once had because of this thing that she had been through and I sort of made up a place um, picking and choosing lots of, you know, what I liked about this town or what was interesting to me about this town and what I what was interesting to me about that town. The um, the actual, the, the story involves in part some steps that are carved out of a, of a cliff face down to a river, which 
no longer exists. And and those, I believe, were in La Ronda. And I was very, um, I was very taken that, you know, they were, they're, they're, inside the cliff so they're very dark and they're very steep and there are god there are so many of them and then you get to the bottom and there's no river there's really not much of anything except that you're now turning around and going back up um it was all it was just very it was genuinely uh, surreal to be doing that and so that's what i tried to recreate and it's interesting that 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 as you tell us now that it's a trip you made with your daughter, because I was, as I was reading the story, it's about uh, two friends, but it seemed to me it'd be another family story in terms of the families we choose. And, and there's, you know, we have the families that, that were given, and but then there are the families we choose to create as well. Yes. I, I think that, um, that that's a, a theme in a lot of the books that I really like to read as well as the books that I really like to write that you, um, and I, I've got a, the family I've been given is a pretty good family. Mm-hmm. I'm not, I'm not unhappy with them at all, but, uh, the family I've chosen is also a mighty fine group of people. Mm. And I guess I'm also interested, um, again, um, in the, People who somehow are thrust into your life, maybe not necessarily either way. You know, they're not the people you choose, and they're not um, in your bloodline. Um, and yet, there are people to whom you you seem to have some sort of responsibility, one way or another. That's an interesting observation. You know, I never thought about it that way. You also love fairy tales, I'm guessing. I do love fairy tales, <laughs> yes. And you craft a number of them. I think the Pelican Bar in feels very much like a, a, a Grimm Brothers story where just uh, <laughs> at the end the children are eaten. <laughs> and there's a pile of bones somewhere, <laughs> and that's humanity. Uh, you, you like the Pied Piper myth. And and that pops up a couple times here. Well, again, as as you said, I like John Wilkes Booth. I, I actually don't like the Pied Piper myth. I think it's a, it, you know, it's a terrifying story. I w- did a an event at a um, convention now several years ago where a bunch of writers um, in a sort of panel setting were talking about the fairy tales that had influenced them the most and that had had the biggest impact on their life and resonated the most with them. And I was very struck by the fact that, um, for me, it's absolutely the Pied Piper, but that everybody else was talking about a story, you know, that they had really loved, that sort of opened doors to them. And for me, you know, (laughs) my experience was utterly otherwise, that um, the Pied Piper was just a story that horrified me and that uh, that I couldn't, I couldn't shake um, this, uh, everything about it, you know, the the horrible parents and uh, the... um, terrifying figure who leads you and and the dead rats all the dead rats good god <laughs> I, I i love this story the dark it's really very it's in so many interesting uh it's such an interesting cross pollination of of different kind of legends you know the 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 wild man legend and and the the um Pied Piper, talk about um, 
creating the story. This, is this a story that came out really quickly? I, I get the sense that this story was written maybe over a longer period of time. Maybe that's just the way it's paced. Um, it's, it's certainly a story um, about the, the 60s, mm-hmm. um, which is a time you know, the, that I lived through. I was 18 in 1968 and, um, and you know, was certainly a, a, a crucible for me and many other people my age but is actually a period that I find it very difficult to write about. I, I have had in my head now for several years um, a San Francisco trilogy that I would like to do. Uh, and I've, I've done the first book. The first book um, would be Sister Noon, which I wrote several years ago. But the second book would take place in about, in uh, I think, the 1930s and would involve some people from Sister Noon who were children in Sister Noon but would be adults. And then the, the third part would take place um, around the time of the uh, Milk and Moscone assassinations in San Francisco. And I think one of the thing one of the reasons that I can't that I haven't gone forward on this idea, which I've had for a very long time, is that I just can't imagine how I would write the third. You know, the the period of time that I actually lived through seems paradoxically much more difficult. Um, and possibly beyond my capabilities than, than the historical periods where I'm researching. And um, Why do you think that is? I think there are probably a number of reasons, um, one of which I think is that, uh, and, you know, Moscone and Milk is not quite the 60s, but, um, but close, is there something about that period that is just instantly caricature? That it, you know everything from the way people dress to the language people used when they spoke is just there's just something you know faintly hilarious about it. <laughs> uh, uh, very hard to do it and not feel like a cartoon well, in no, I some think, sort of way. Well, I, I, the, I'm guessing that the feel you want to evoke is what you do in the dark, which is entirely creepy and scary, and <laughs> kind of terrorizing. <laughs> It sound like my stories are all really scary. I don't think, I think there are several really happy stories <laughs> in the book. Uh, I suppose not, actually. <laughs> Private Grave Number Nine has play, has a lot of fun with uh, one of uh, another figure that you're interested in, Agatha Christie. Yes, um, I wrote um, Private Grave Number Nine for uh, Michael Chabon. Uh, he, he was putting together the uh, Thrilling Tales, uh, the McSweeney, and, um, uh, which was intended, I think, to be partly a conversation or to launch a conversation about genre and about plot. And mm-hmm. um, there was, as is tragically going to be the case when you've agreed to write a story for someone, there was an, an actual deadline. And... Um, and I got. Oh my. I, <laughs> I know. <laughs> I finished the story uh, in time, and it went into the book. But I was never entirely happy with it. I I felt it was very close to what I wanted, but I felt it needed one or two more passes. And so I was always very sad that you know that there it was, and I didn't get to fix it. And then did an event a year or so ago with Tobias Wolf, and he read a part of a story and said. Um, 
you know, now those of you who saw this in its published form will see that I've I've made some changes. You know, there are some things that, and I thought, oh, oh my God, can you do that with a published story? So um, I took his word for it that I can. And so the the way it appears in uh, what I didn't see is not quite the way it appeared in the McSweeney's version. It is in fact a little closer to the way I, with with time and uh, hindsight, the way I wanted it. But it it involves um, I, what I wanted to do because because the, uh, this is a fun story. Thank you. It's and and it's and it's not entirely creepy. It doesn't. <laughs> I didn't want to run a creepy out. Ending. I didn't want to run outside and look at the spring and see the houses <laughs> around me. At the end of the Pelican Bar, I just had to go outside and go. Okay. Okay. Um, because we were playing around with genre, because um, Michael had encouraged us to play around with genre. What I was trying to do was. Uh, a version of the uh, the mummy curse story. I was trying to write a mummy's curse story, and using as as you said, um, Agatha Christie and her her experiences with um, with digs and that she she wrote a couple of books. One um, one a memoir of being on digs with her husband, and mm. then and then a, also a, a murder mystery that took place in a dig. I have to say. Um, and pains me wherever she is to think that she'll hear me say this but I for um when I was writing Wit's End and for this story you know I, I read a few of her books again and found them pretty p- preposterous <laughs> the, the one that takes place at a dig I did not think was a good murder mystery although I loved her when I first read her I think my my tastes have changed and I like uh, I like the way it's being done now, much mm. better than the way it was being done then. I think she adapts really well, though. The David Suchet of Poirot. <laughs> oh my God, they're so good. They're so good. <laughs> I'd rather, almost rather watch them than, than read them in, in that sense. Now, um, I, I wanted to talk about another family story, the, the Mariana, Mariana Silence. Do you have a submarine in your family? <laughs> Not that I know of. If anybody in the family has a submarine, they're keeping it pretty close to the chest. Well, we'll talk about that story because I think that is that really is, and that also is a is a very sweet story, and and it's, um, it really captures I think the essence of how family stories help people within the family define themselves and understand their own families. I would be um, hard pressed to talk to you very much about that story. I don't. Um, I wrote it um, because I was going to Sycamore Hill and I needed a story. I had, I guess, the the main point of departure for me in it um, is that during the war, my father um, made maps. He he was a meteor. He he worked as a meteorologist during the war, and he made. Um, these maps that were printed on nylon scarves of um, of the Pacific. Uh, the, the idea was, I believe, that um, a pilot would t- carry one of these maps with them. They were completely waterproof. When the plane was shot down, he would pull out the map and locate the nearest island and the currents that would get him there. And, you know, they were supposed to 
bring you back to um, back to shore. <laughs> but you, and so I have a great many of these maps. Um, really? In, that uh, that my dad did, um, and um, and talk about terrifying. There, you know, there you you open them up, and they're they're water. You know, there are maybe these little fly speck islands that you're trying to get to, but mostly what you see is um, vectors where the wind is and where the currents are. And, you know, there's no way, there's no way. Yeah, there's, n- you know, no identifiable landmark. Um, I would love to know if anybody ever used one of these maps to actually make sure, um, or if anybody ever used one of these maps at all. But. I was, um, that was the image that I had in mind, this map uh, on which there is a virtually no actual landmark, just air and water. And, um, and that made me think about, um, about Alzheimer's, um, which um, at the time that I was writing the book, um, in, a, in a peculiar twist of family fate, uh, not only did my father work on these maps, but um, after my father died, my mother remarried, and the man that she remarried also worked on those maps. He was part of the same unit as my father, and and at the time I was writing the story, he had just been diagnosed with Alzheimer's, mm. and um, and so I guess those are the things I was thinking about. And then at a certain point, I thought, what's needed here is a submarine. <laughs> Well, for a story you can't talk very much about, you just gave us a wonderful story about the story. (laughs) Good. The title story in in this book, What I Didn't See, uh, brings to mind that I think that short stories are a good way for writers to talk about other writers. I do a great deal of that because I'm such an enthusiastic reader. mm. um, Well, tell us about the writer who you talk about in What I Didn't See because that writer is pretty interesting. Um, what I didn't see is in some ways a response to um, Alice Sheldon, um, whose, whose professional name was James Tiptree Jr., a very um, iconic feminist science fiction story that she wrote called The Women Men Don't See. And um, her, um, her mother was a woman named Mary Bradley, and Mary Bradley had gone on a early expedition to uh, safari. Um, I think was perhaps one of the first white women to see the mountain gorillas. Not only to see them, but to shoot them. Um, I read. I think it, um, in some um, feminist. Um, treatise about the whole thing, um, something that I was not, that I used in the story, although I was not able to confirm it anywhere else, that, that women were invited along on the safari, which I think was in about the 1920s or 30s, I'm not quite remembering, um, because um, the man who put the expedition together thought that gorillas had a very ferocious um, uh, image and and was afraid that they would be hunted because of that that they would become real a real trophy animal when in fact the, you know they were very gentle little 
vegetarians in his mind. And so he invited women along, thinking that if a couple of women shot some gorillas, that the thrill would just immediately go out of the whole proceeding, that no man would then think it was at all adventurous to go do so. So it's this bizarre, um, as I said, unaffirmed um, version uh, in which you take some women off to kill gorillas in the hopes that this will save the mountain gorillas from the predatory males. So so the story is a is a uses all of those things. It it talks a, it's in some sort of conversation with the story that her daughter um, Alice Sheldon wrote and and Alice was along on these original safaris although she was only about 5 at the time. But it's um the response is also set into uh, an expedition much like the one her mother took her on and then has um, other elements as well. It's such a, a fascinating s- a story and, and uh, so uh, beautifully evocative of, of, of this, of a place and time. And that's one, something I think you do really well is to, in a short story setting, you, you're really good at transporting us instantly. And, and so talk about the kind of, you know, the way that the necessity for doing that in a, you know, more quick amount of time. It's not something, you don't have a lot of time in a short story to, to 50 pages to immerse us in some place. You got to dump us in the jungle quickly. <laughs> <laughs> well, again, you know, I figure, I figure you're bringing a lot to the story. And, and when I'm thinking about uh, historical settings or trying to immerse you in a historical setting or a, a geographical one that may be less familiar, um, I, uh, I, feel that you have um, you have images of your own. Like if I say the jungle, you've got some images um, coming from God knows where. But there's sort of a default agreed on kind of jungle that we all carry collectively in our heads. And so um, much as I was saying about working with a, a historical event that everybody's familiar with, I can assume that you've got that. And what I need to bring then um, is things that that are not in that collective, you know, things that you wouldn't know, things that might surprise you, things that um, sharpen it. So, um, so the short story um, and the whole question of compression is is actually quite an easy one because uh, because the the larger setting. Um, because I'm, because I'm working with what you've already got. My favorite, um, and I think very instructive example of this is when I, when I wrote Sister Noon, I was sending a book in, um, in the Gilded Age in San Francisco, um, sort of the Victorian period, and, and so I think to myself, you know, okay, we, we've all got from movies and television and other books and wherever, we've all got some sort of default Victorian stuff in our heads. And in that default stuff, I think um, you would not be surprised. You understand that women of a certain class were wearing corsets at that time. But what I did not know until I did the research and what I expect you too, did not know and will then be surprised when you read it in my book, is that um, these corsets were available in infant sizes, that it was possible, you know, to buy a corset for your brand new baby daughter uh, in order to give her the hourglass shape that 
was so admired. And, and so that's the thing I'm looking for, the thing that, that will take what you know but shock you with what you didn't know. And on the other end of the spectrum, uh, there's halfway people, which is set in a, a fairy tale. It's a fairy tale for adults, and it's beautiful, heartbreaking story. Um, and, and in that, you just use a few deft strokes to create this world for us. And we, I had you read a, a, a bit from it. And one of the things I think that you do well is to bring in things that are familiar, renting houses, summer. I mean, all that stuff sounds very familiar. And then we have the man with one, you know. <laughs> so talk about that kind of mixing of putting enough familiar in so we feel like we're in a real place and then mixing in the unfamiliar. So we're just going, wow, we're in a fairy tale. I, I, you know, this is this brings us kind of full circle to something that I almost said earlier in the conversation when um, when sort of at the very beginning um, about how you revise your sense of the world as you're as you're growing and um, and one of the ways that I now experience the world uh, uh, always experience the world but I'm now very conscious of is is that there is I think this um, this this familiar world, which is the you know the landscapes that you actually navigate and the people you actually talk to and and the things that happen to you during your day. So it, it's the you know it's the world of your personal life and and for me at least um, because I've been lucky enough to live in a peaceful place at a peaceful time at least it's been peaceful in the place where I've been. Um, you know the world that the 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 small world of my personal life is a pretty comfortable one and uh, and one that um one that that looks you know kind of logical like uh, the people in my life rarely do things that um that i find incomprehensible occasionally they do but mostly you know it's it seems like a world that you can learn the rules of and and know how to behave in um and then you know that that small personal life is set in a, just a completely insane world where you know um which is the the world that i only get filtered you know i read about it um or i see it on television or or witches run for office uh, exactly exactly this is the world in which you know um, the star of the Terminator can be elected governor of California, and someone can actually say with a straight face that Sarah Palin is a breath of fresh air. And, you know, people see um, Christ in the burn marks uh, on their grilled cheese sandwich, and people clone sheep, and it looks like there was once water and possibly life on Mars. And there's a sea of trash the size of Texas floating in the Pacific Ocean. It's just, it, you know, it it just makes no sense at all. And that sea of trash is running for office. <laughs> <laughs> and it's probably polling very well, too. <laughs> so, uh, so I have this, when I write, uh, you know, um, I am trying to, sort of create life as I live it, which is this this small story with m- many things that are familiar and make sense, and but set in a world um, which you are never going to know the rules to, really, which you are never going to navigate easily. I think 
I think the one thing that I believe with all my heart is that the world will always exceed my ability to understand it. And there is a part of writing a story that suggests a level of understanding that I don't want to claim. So I'm always trying in my stories to include something that evokes the incomprehensible uh, and the irrational and the bizarrely coincidental and all of the other things that that the real world abounds in, but that um, that fiction frequently finds difficult. I've been speaking with Karen Joy Fowler. Her new book is, collection of short stories is What I Didn't See. Thank you for speaking with me, Karen. Thank you so much, Rick. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.